Now, what would you say if I said that as an application of today's text in John chapter 13, that tonight during our family meeting, we will be holding a foot washing ceremony? <laughs> I knew there was going to be some people that would be excited about that, um, where we will wash one another's feet. Even in my notes here, I said some of you might get excited. Some of you may be grossed out, like my daughters, especially if they think about their dad's feet. Um, but I predict, I knew I was going to get some rile up here. Um, I predict, I can almost guarantee that a lot of us would either do number one, not show up, or number two, clean our feet to the utmost before coming tonight. Now, I know and I've heard from some of you uh, that participated in foot washing ceremonies in different churches or traditions that you found them very meaningful. And I can, I can understand why. And some of you, like over here, some of you would be excited about it. But we're not going to do that tonight. Um, so let's put that aside, set aside the sweatiness of most of our feet, add on to that. And this is where my wife's like, oh, Jeremy, don't say that. But the fungi or athlete's feet that some of us battle with. Um, the, que the question to ask is, is this foot washing really what Jesus wants us to get from this text? Or do we have a greater need than clean feet? Well, let's read the text that God has for us this morning and find out. And if you are able to, please stand. This is a way that sometimes we, we stand up to honor the scriptures because they are the authoritative. They are the inspired the infallible word of God. Paul said to Timothy that these are breathed out by God. There is power in these words. Power to expose and to change the human heart. Power to help us see Jesus. So let's listen to every word as I read John 13, 1 through 17. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hand and that he had come from God and was going back to God, Jesus rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with a towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, what I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. And Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. And Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. And Jesus said to him, the one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. You are, and you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him. That was why he said, not all of you are clean. And when he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, Do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. 
If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should also do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. You may take your seats as I pray. Father, this morning, be our guide by your spirit. Exalt Jesus Christ and his work in our hearts as we unpack this text and speak clearly to our hearts. And Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be pleasing in your sight. In Jesus' name, amen. This morning we have three points to consider. So first point, point number one, the determined Savior. This is in verses one through three. But first off, remember where we have been in the Gospel of John. Jesus has demonstrated time and time again who he is. He is the divine Son of God. He does this through signs and through his teaching. At the close of chapter 12, which Ben covered last week, we saw that Jesus again repeats, as we have seen throughout the Gospel of John, that there are only two ways, two possible ways to respond to him. A person either believes in him or they do not. A person either receives him or they do not. And Jesus had some very stern words for those who would hear his words and reject them. On the final day, as theologians say, that day, the very words he spoke will judge them, or those who reject him and his words. So we must respond to Jesus and his words with faith and follow. Because this is the whole reason John wrote this gospel. We see in John 20, verse 31, these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you have life. You may have life in his name. So these words are intended to bring life to us. Now, as John continues in chapter 13, his narrative writing signals a change of scene, a change of setting. He's making it clear that we are entering into a new phase of his gospel. And Leon Morris tells us why. He says, the public ministry of Jesus is over. John tells us nothing more of any words spoken by Jesus to the crowds. There are a few words to those who arrested him. There are a few to those who examined him. But apart from these, the whole of the rest of the gospel concerns Jesus' final teaching to his own disciples and the events surrounding the passion, which means his suffering and his crucifixion. This section from chapter 13 all the way up to chapter 17. This is called the farewell discourse. It's an intentional time that Jesus spends with the disciples, teaching them. And we will see this continue as we go through these several chapters. So what do we find, though, as he, at the very beginning of this section, in these first three verses? Well, we find the determined Savior. Just a few things to note here. John writes that this is now before the, the feast of the Passover in verse 1 and then during supper in verse 2. 
So we're not quite yet at the Passover, but it's coming soon. And it seems that this is the Last Supper. The other three Gospels identify this very clearly. But we don't see from John that he says, this is the Last Supper. But we do see evidence here in his account that this is that meal. Because all the accounts and evidence that we have from what Judas is doing in the midst of this meal. So it lines up. So this makes it the evening, the eve of the cross. And we see in verse 1, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of the world to the Father. John signals that this is nearing Jesus' death by crucifixion. It's probably only about a day away. And Jesus is spending time with those he loved, those he chose. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. See here the determined Savior. That end, in his mind, it seems, is going to the cross. He will fulfill his loving mission by going to the cross for them and anyone else who would trust in him so that he would secure their future with him in eternity. So Living Hope Church, even in verse 1, see your determined Savior who loves you to the end. Do you ever wonder if Jesus will be steadfast to you to the end of your days? Behold your determined Savior. Trust him. Follow him. Hold fast to your confession and your hope. He will hold you fast. Now we'll come back to this a little bit later. But during supper here, we see in verse, in verse 2, John writes this. He says, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas to betray him. Now we'll cover this more next week in, in detail, but just one point from this. The devil is lurking behind the scenes. John wants us to see this. Now, oftentimes in the New Testament, we don't see a lot written about what the devil is doing. But here clearly, we need to see his role because he's leading Judas to betray Jesus. Now after, after John writes that statement, what would you think would be the statement that he would write next? Now I would think it would be something like, Jesus, knowing what Judas was about to do, did this. But that's not what we see. Leon Morris says, here we have an unexpected twist. Instead of something like knowing what Judas would do, we have Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power. The threshold of Calvary, right before the cross. It seems an unlikely place for a statement of sovereignty like this, but the reference to the Father is important. He is no idle spectator at the Passion, but he does his will there. This is what we would call a juxtaposition. It's taking two things, the fact of two things being seen here in place, place them together with a contrasting effect. So really, it's really to point out that Jesus, yes, here's the devil. But he already knows what the Father's doing. The Father's in control, even giving to Jesus all things into his hands. This is divine 
sovereignty. Yes, the devil is lurking, but Jesus, the determined Savior, stays focused on the mission. Knowing the Father is in control and knowing that he himself will carry out this mission and that he will be back with his Father at the end. He came from God and he's going back to God. So church, behold your determined Savior, not getting distracted by the enemy of our souls. And there is something for us to take note here as well. It's so easy at times to think about, oh, the enemy is trying to distract me and to be so focused on that that we miss what the Lord wants us to focus on, which is exactly the devil's design. In 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 6 through 9, we see that we need to resist the devil, firm in our faith, submitting to God, orienting ourselves to God and his plan. Yes, we go through various trials, but we must stay focused on the mission. And here's the promise. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. See, church, as we see Jesus' determination, it actually emboldens our own as well. To stay steadfast in what God is calling us to, to trust him with everything. So point number one is that determined Savior. Now earlier I said in this section, this starts off a farewell discourse for Jesus with his disciples. That we see his determination to make this, this cross, this whole salvation story and all the work he was doing leading up to the cross and through the cross. He is determined to make this happen. This indeed will happen. But as he continues his conversation and his teachings to his disciples, what is his first priority? This is his, his basically last time he's being with his disciples before the cross. What is his priority? What does he want them and us to think about? Well, he wants to focus on what he came to do by giving them a picture that illustrates it. So let's look at point number two. His washing power. We see this in verses 4 through 11. He washes their feet. Notice how John represents this. It's like, it's like we're in a movie theater. And the person playing the movie puts it in slow motion. He could have easily, John could have recorded this and said, you know, Jesus washed the disciples' feet. And that was it. We probably would have gotten it, right? But look how he does this. Look Look the detail he goes into this. Like, he laid aside his outer garments, and taking a towel, he tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with a the towel that was wrapped around him. Such detail. Intentionality in how he wrote this. John is trying to be very vivid to slow us down. Why? Because Jesus is doing something that is contrary to anything anyone else would expect of him. He is pursuing a lowly, a menial service. Colin Cruz says in his commentary on this, he says, Jesus' action was unprecedented. A wife might wash her husband's feet. Children might wash their father's feet. See, girls? Um, <laughs> sorry. 
bad attempt at humor. Um, Disciples might wash their master's feet, but in every case, it would be an, an act of extreme devotion. Note that. Foot washing was normally carried out by a servant, not by those participating in the meal, and certainly not by the one presiding at the meal. An act of extreme devotion. Here's our Savior taking the form of a servant and extreme devotion to his disciples. James Hamilton Jr. says, this, this was a world where air conditioning had not been invented, roads were not paved with concrete or asphalt, and shoes were not closed-toed. These were the smelly, dirty, grimy feet of men who walked everywhere they went on roads covered in dust and, yes, animal waste. Jesus is doing something that's totally contrary to traditional expectations and even what the disciples would expect. Taking the position of a servant. In this, we should hear echoes of Isaiah 53. The suffering servant. This might be even what Paul is thinking when he wrote uh, uh, Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. Jesus taking the form of a servant. Now, none of the disciples stopped him except Peter. Simon Peter, and we see in this interaction with Simon Peter and Jesus, that Jesus clearly communicates what his intentions were for doing this act. What's his first priority in his farewell discourse? He is demonstrating his washing power, but not just to wash feet. Look at this interchange, Peter. <laughs> Lord, do you wash my feet? And Jesus right away gets, like, I know he doesn't understand this. Let me just explain it to him. But he says, <laughs> he says to him, what I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand and we can see, looking back at the cross, that Jesus was saying afterward, this, after the cross, you'll understand. But Jesus still has to deal with Simon Peter. Simon Peter says, you shall never wash my feet. Now, there's a double negative in this. There's also, at the end, a sense of, like, not even an eternity. Peter emphatically declaring to the Lord, the teacher, and the Savior, uh-uh, you're not going to wash my feet. But Jesus responds, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. And of course, Simon Peter does a, an about face and goes to the other extreme and says, well then, wash my hands and my head, everything. But Jesus denies that need. Simply stating, if your feet are clean, you are clean. So we have to understand, in these meals, people come to these meals, they already bathed. The only thing that's dirty is their feet at this point, right? So Jesus is basically saying, you're already clean, but I'm cleaning your feet, the dirtiest part of you, to show you something. I'm showing you my washing power. And he's... He does acknowledge for us in this text that there is one among them that's not clean, but the other 11 disciples, he was saying, you're all clean. 
Now, we'll talk about Judas next week. But it is interesting that Judas probably had his feet washed. But he was not clean in the way that Jesus washes people clean. There is great significance in what this means for us. See, this, this, is, this has a deeper meaning for every single one of us. Colin Cruz says the meaning of Jesus' response to Peter, therefore, must be sought at a deeper level. Jesus' self-humiliation washing his disciples' feet symbolized his self-humiliation in accepting death upon the cross to bring about their cleansing from sin. Remember how people mocked Jesus, spit on him, even as he was hanging on the cross. <laughs> Save yourself! Being mocked, humiliated, but he accepted it so that his people can be clean. So in this respect, Peter and the rest of the disciples must accept what Jesus did for them. For if they did not, clearly they could have no part with him. And really, this is really important. Jesus was saying to Peter that unless he was prepared to accept what he would do for him on the cross, there could be no relationship with them, between them. So let me ask the question, have you personally believed in and received Jesus Christ in this way? That when he went to the cross, bearing the weight of sin and judgment against our sin, that what he did on that cross, shedding his blood, was for you. And you receive that. And really, actually, receive a washing. The Lord says in Isaiah 1.18, Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. See, Jesus brings his washing power through his blood shed at the cross. He died in the place of sinners so that those who trust in him would be forgiven and have eternal life. And even greater yet, know him personally, even now, today. But it is only for those who receive it. Peter's initial response is the typical, natural response. There's no need. You shall never wash me. A.M. Hunter says, many people today would like to be Christians but see no need of the cross. They cannot bring themselves to believe that Christ died for their sins and that without death, they would be lost in their sin. But there is no being a Christian without receiving what Jesus did on the cross for you. Recognizing you will be lost if you continue in your sin and not come to Jesus for this kind of washing. Friend, if you have never cried out to Jesus for this kind of cleansing, that he would wash you of your sins, that you would receive his cleansing, his forgiveness, his saving work on the cross, I would just, I would just ask you, come today and be washed. The scriptures say today is the day of salvation. Come, receive this healing, this cleansing power. You will never be the same. Jesus washes completely. Now, I remember when I was saved in college, I was not looking for God. It is just crazy that I'm standing up here preaching this morning. I was not seeking God. I was not acknowledging God. But he came after me. 
through a series of events, the Lord had me singing a song with my brother's church, and it was a song called Whiter Than Snow. And this is the verse that the Lord impressed on my soul to help me cry out for this kind of cleansing that we're talking about this morning. This is what it says. I'm not going to sing it. I'm just going to read it. Lord Jesus, I long to be perfectly whole. I want you forever to live in my soul. Break down every idol. Oh, and I had many. Cast out every foe. Now wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Friend, you too can cry out to Jesus to save you and wash you this very minute. And he will answer. Now for those of us who have received his washing power, you ever stop and ask the question, why did he do this for us? There was nothing in us. What we brought to the table was just sin and darkness, rebellion. But Jesus did this. And he's clearly articulating it to the disciples through washing their feet. I'm doing this for you. Let me wash you. It's good for us to stop and ponder at times, to think just simply, wow. He really did wash me. He really did this amazing work for me. We do really stand completely righteous by faith in him before the Father. White as snow. White as snow. Ever think about it? As you look out, snow is freshly fallen. Every single time I see that, I think of that song. I think of how Jesus is my perfect righteousness before the Father. And then the salt trucks come by and make it all dirty. But, <laughs> but the point is, it's just such a great reminder. Such a great reminder of what Jesus did for us. That we stand justified. Wholly accepted before the Father. We've been washed white as snow. Now, the scriptures teach us that as believers, we need a continual outworking of this. Not that... Not that Jesus washing us initially wasn't sufficient to get us clean. But he gives us, the Lord gives us in 1 John chapter 1, this idea that the Christian life is is one walked out in community where we actually get to practically apply this truth in our midst. We see in John, 1 John chapter 1, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. See, when we we pursue fellowship and community, we are applying this truth of Jesus cleansing us practically. We need each other to remind each other that Jesus has cleansed us and when we see sin in our hearts, which we still have remaining sin that we're battling, we get to apply the gospel. We get to apply his cleansing blood to us, remembering what he did for us so that we benefit from from it. You may be in a place this morning where you're very freshly aware of where your sin is. Jesus wants to remind you this morning from this text 
Not only has he washed you, but his washing and cleansing is available to you 24 hours a day, seven days a week. That you would know his faithfulness to not just forgive, but to cleanse you from that very sin. One thought I had as I was thinking about this during this, this prep this morning or this week is the question is, how faithful are we in pursuing fellowship where we are real with one another? We allow the opportunity in the context community of community to, to have the Lord remind us of what we need to remind it of, the gospel, the cleansing flow of Jesus' blood for us. So this is partly why we do community groups as a church. It provides us a context where we're in an intimate setting. We can do that. We can remind each other of the gospel. If you're not in a community group, let me encourage you to seriously consider it. That you can benefit from what John is saying in 1 John 1. You can go out to the Welcome Center. We have a pamphlet there that lists all the community groups. But you are more than welcome to come and participate in those community groups. To benefit from that kind of fellowship. Being reminded of what Jesus has done. I, can think, I, I think I can speak for all of us here. As we think about the song, it says, Oh, precious is the flow that makes me white as snow. No other fount I know. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. That's his washing power, church. That's why Jesus washed the feet of the disciples. To show that what he's going to do at the cross really is efficacious and effective to wash us. Now we come to point number three, which is our last point. And it's the second priority that Jesus has for his disciples and for us. It's very simple. He now calls them to go and do likewise. So point number three is our discipleship calling, verses 12 through 17. Jesus connects his washing of their feet, his service to them, to what they are now called to do. You've been washed. Now go and do this. So Jesus returns in verse 12 to where he was before after putting on his outer garment. He turns to all of his disciples and says, Do you understand what I have done for you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. It's interesting, he says, I am. He is the sovereign one. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should also do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. So Jesus is highlighting his significant status, his titles that they knew. He's Lord and teacher. He's teacher and Lord. He's the I am. If I have lowly served you, you should go and serve one another. James Harrison or Hamilton Jr. says, the argument is simple. If Jesus is not too important to serve them, then they are not too important to serve one another. It's obviously a clear connection between washing, being washed by the Savior, and the subsequent life of serving and following the Savior and doing the same. He calls us to discipleship. Now, we're not perfect in this, but we're growing. We are wanting to follow the Savior and follow him by grace, not because it's a Law is not this, this way, this, this overarching duty that we just have to do this. 
but it is an outworking of the grace of God in our lives that we get to do this, that we actually have the Spirit of God living in us, like Ezekiel 36 talks about, where he helps us to obey God, to follow him in all of his ways. Now, you might ask the question, well, what about this whole foot washing thing? Is this Jesus instituting another kind of ordinance like baptism in the Lord's Supper? Well, the simple answer is no. I get it to some situations it can be meaningful, but Richard D. Phillips clarifies it for us. He says, having used the foot washing as a paradigm for his own atoning death, Jesus employs it as a model for our sacrificial service in his name. He was not establishing a ritual. Rather, Jesus' intent was to set forth a lifestyle. A lifestyle that emulates the example he set by this humble act of service. It's not a ritual, but a lifestyle. Humble service to one another within the local community of the church. This is our discipleship calling. Now, think about this. How often times you look out in the world, in news articles and different things where you see people talking about what does genuine community look like? See, the world is, is, is grabbing, trying to understand how do you build genuine, authentic community? They don't know how to do it, but they do watch us. And we can have a significant impact just by our simple service to one another in the body of Christ. Bruce Milne says, in a world desperately searching for the secret of community, this passage speaks most powerfully. It is those who have been humbled at the cross and come to Christ as helpless sinners seeking cleansing who are the raw material of the community of humble servants. The cross is both the way of salvation and the key to community. Now, as I read this, I had to stop and marvel I think I even got an email about something with regards to some serving thing that was happening in Living Hope. Just marvel at the fact that Living Hope, you are a community of humble servants. There is so much grace present in this church. You keep aware of needs across the body in a way that is just amazing to me. And you seek to meet those needs, those needs. We have quite, we've had quite a number of surgeries over the last bunch of months. And then seeing people either providing meals, rides to doctor's appointments, visitation in the hospital, rides to therapy, you name it. There's so many things that have been met through your humble service. Even recently, even I believe as of yesterday, even a group of you recently have been helping to serve a particular family on the West Shore. And this is not just yesterday, but over a number of weekends. Doing projects at their home. This is washing their feet. This is humble service. This is giving your time, donating your money, your your resources, your expertise to help them. Expecting nothing in return. But knowing, just as Jesus, Jesus talks about here, you are blessed You are blessed if you do them. You know in your serving there is joy. Serving is joy. And you're proving that you are Jesus' disciples in your actions. Following in his footsteps. 
And as Jesus said, you are blessed in your doing. Keep doing this by grace. This is what Jesus calls us to. Now, I mentioned earlier at the beginning of my message that we're seeking to plant a church on the West Shore in Mechanicsburg, Dillsbury area. And with that in mind, there's going to be a lot of needs. There's going to be a lot of needs, not just in the church plant, but here at Living Hope as well. Now, it is our confidence as pastors, just like you do in other ways, you're going to be aware of the needs and you're going to seek to meet them. You're going to take up, because you're serious about this, you're going to take up your discipleship calling. And it's going to be fun because this is a season, this is a season that's going to present us with opportunities to serve in ways that maybe we've never done before. It's going to be stretching. But God is going to provide grace and ways for us to grow. And you, when you step out in faith to do something that you've never done before, you may be surprised how God's going to bless your efforts. Trust me, I've never planted a church before. I'm surprised already how God has been blessing things. There's many mornings I still wake up thinking, Are, is this really happening? But God's doing it. It's not one man. It's not even just a couple people. This is a community. Richard D. Phillips says, The needs within any church are far greater than the ministry staff, elders, and deacons can possibly meet. It takes a community committed to the love of Christ, serving together in humility and compassion. I know that's where you are in your hearts. So as pastors, we are grateful for all of your examples of servanthood, and we just want to fan the flame in our hearts all the more. By the way, if you are new here, we are so grateful that you're visiting with us. I'd love you to really seriously consider, is this the body that God's calling you to make your home? And if so, are there ways that you can serve locally as we go through this process to plant the church? It has been amazing to see the new folks that God has been bringing to Living Hope. Um, it's almost like he's preparing us to launch a church plant in the fall. <laughs> I didn't know if you were going to laugh at that or not, but I just figured I'd try. Whether you're going on the plant or you're remaining here, whether you're sending us out or you're going along, whatever, both aspects of fulfilling our discipleship calling are needed. Both aspects are needed. Now this, is, this call to discipleship is not just with the church. It goes into our families as well. Husbands and fathers. How are we doing in serving our families? Leading them to Christ and just doing practical service. Teens. When your parents are asking you to do things, is your heart to say, yeah, I want to follow Jesus in serving my parents serving my family. Very simple things. I just felt like I should say that. It wasn't even in my notes, but I just felt like the Lord wanted us to consider the full gamut of all this. Because Jesus washed our sins away. He's taken care of our eternity. He's taken care of all of our sins. We should follow him in serving one another humbly. Now, if I could ask the worship team to come back up, I want to return back to the very beginning where we started. We have a determined Savior. John said, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Now his loving his disciples to the end really, I believe, meant he's going to the cross. 
But the implication for us is he will love us to the end. In Hebrews 7.25, we read this. Consequently, he, Jesus, is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. He always lives? Yeah, our Savior is the risen Savior. He is alive. He is always living to intercede for us. A couple sections of Scripture talk about how he prays for us, how he intercedes for us. He lives to intercede always. He always lives to wash us. He always lives to save us to the uttermost as we draw near to God through him in faith. Oh, our Savior loves us. He will not let us down. So even now as we return to singing, I just want to encourage you as we sing Rock of Ages and we sing it together, let this hymn be a prayer for you. Wherever you are, a prayer of receiving and believing in his washing. Let's pray.